Does your yes actually mean yes? Does your no actually mean no? Imagine a cute little girl with a big expressive personality. Think Shirley Temple. She's skipping around the house and her her daddy comes home and she runs to him and he tells her, Molly, I have a surprise for you. I'm off tomorrow and I'm taking you to the zoo and then for ice cream. Excitedly and without hesitation, she looks up at her or at him and says, Oh, daddy, do you promise? And with a twinkle in his eye, he lovingly says, I promise. And that's a cute story. Isn't that a cute story? You can maybe picture it. But I want us to think about it for just a little bit here. Why does she ask her daddy, do you promise? Why didn't she just accept her father's word? Well, three thoughts. One, the little girl instinctively knows that she can't always be trusted and neither can anyone else. Uh, She ate the candy without asking. She uh, hid her father's tool after breaking it. She told her mother that she did not eat the cookie with crumbs on her lips. She knows. And others have broken their commitments to her, so this little girl is a natural skeptic. So two, this little girl instinctively lacks trust in her father's word. She feels that she needs something more from her father than his simple yes or no. Three, the father says, I promise, out of love, to assure his daughter that he's serious, that he means what he says about their day together. Well, this illustrates the reason why people make oaths or vows or promises. Sometimes people lie and break their promises or forget, or miscalculate, or get stuck in traffic. People are sinful. People are unreliable. Psalm 116.11 says, all mankind are liars. Jeremiah 17.9 adds, the heart is deceitful above all things. We need to remember that God's law demands perfect and perpetual truth-telling and word-keeping. The law leaves no room for broken commitments. Why? God is entirely truthful and trustworthy. God always tells the truth and God always keeps his word. He never forgets, never miscalculates, never misspeaks, and changing circumstances never prevent God from keeping his word. God's yes is an absolute yes. God's no is an absolute no. And this is why we trust him and this is why we love him. How different God is from us. Brothers and sisters, God demands that our words and actions are truthful and trustworthy, and for that to happen, truth must be revered inside of us, in our hearts, so Christ must conform our hearts to His, because we are often dishonest and unreliable. The glory of the gospel is that God transforms liars into truth-tellers and commitment-keepers. Verses 33 through 37 are difficult verses. Uh, They're controversial verses. So a little review will help us understand them better. First, the Sermon on the Mount exhibits the righteousness of the king. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's divine oaths. Second, the Sermon on the Mount expounds the ethics of the kingdom. God's kingdom is a kingdom of truth, 
and it's only open to truth-tellers and oath-keepers. Third, the Sermon on the Mount exposes sin, guilt, and our desperate need of God's grace in Christ. We should read verses 33 through 37, and we should cry out with Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. Fourth, the Sermon on the Mount explains how believers should seek to obey their Heavenly Father by the Spirit's power in gratitude for His grace. It is the grace of Jesus, the truth, at work in us, which compels us to tell the truth and to honor our commitments for God's glory and the good of our neighbors. Now, I should mention that it will take me a while to get to verses 33 through 37. You may be, you may be wondering, when's he going to get to the point? And that's okay. I want you to hang with me. My preliminary points are intended to make the, the main point much stronger and more helpful. So here's the quick outline of where we're going. Number one, what is an oath? Two, why do some Christians believe that all oaths are forbidden and sinful? Three, what does the Bible say about oaths? Four, what was the problem with oaths in Jesus' day? Five, what did Jesus mean uh, in verses 33 through 37? And six, how should we apply verses 33 through 37 today? Number one, what is an oath? In his 1828 American Dictionary of the English Language, Noah Webster defined oath as a solemn affirmation or declaration made with an appeal to God for the truth of what is affirmed. So swearing an oath is a special and solemn occasion where God is called upon as a witness to an affirmation or a promise, and God's judgment is invoked if the oath teller is lying or fails to honor his promise. In this life, people lie, cheat, and steal. Uh, That's life. That's painful. So on special and solemn occasions, an oath strengthens the word of the oath taker and assures and comforts others that the oath taker is being truthful and trustworthy. And if they're not, it's called perjury. One source said that an oath, quote, is meant to give assurance that what is said is true, end of quote. Oaths are meant to show love for God and love for neighbor. Wedding and ordination vows or business contracts, they're they're similar. But the topic of swearing oaths among Christians is controversial. And by the way, when I say swear, just so that you know, I don't mean to curse or to use bad language. Swearing in this sermon means swearing an oath, taking an oath. Some Christians believe swearing oaths is right and good, and others forbid oaths because they regard them as sinful. So number two, why do some Christians believe that all oaths are forbidden and sinful? Quakers, Amish. Mennonites, Church of the Brethren, and other Anabaptists historically do not take oaths because they believe oaths are forbidden and sinful. Historically, they don't swear oaths in court, in military service, or in other capacities. And I don't think it's really that hard to understand why. They take today's verses and James 5.12 at face value. James 5.12 says this, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, 
either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now that seems straightforward. Don't take any oaths at all, ever. That's what it seems to be saying. So then, why have many other Christians throughout history and Reformed confessions promoted oaths? Aren't verses 33 through 37 in James 5, 12 quite obvious? And I think as we go along and as we dig a little deeper, you'll better understand the tension and the difficulty of this issue. So let me ask this question, number three, what does the Bible say about oaths? We, we, we need to look beyond these two passages at the whole scope of Scripture. Considering verses 33 through 37 in James 5.12, we might expect the Bible to speak very negatively about oaths in other places, but that's just not the case at all. The Bible speaks favorably of oaths in many other places. Now, keep in mind that Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount not to correct the law. This is huge. This is very, very important. He didn't preach the Sermon on the Mount to correct the law, but rather to correct common misinterpretations and misapplications of the law. Jesus preached what God's law actually means. So if we are to rightly understand verses 33 through 37, we need to know the law. Three points, subpoints, and they may surprise you. Number one, the law commends and regulates oaths. In Leviticus 19.12, God says, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Psalm 24, uh, 4 and 5 says that a person who does not swear deceitfully will receive blessing from the Lord. And the implication is that when you swear by God's name honestly and solemnly, God will bless you. That's, that's the implication. Numbers 30, verses 1 and 2 say, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, this is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Again, swearing an oath is right and good when it is to the Lord sincere and kept. Deuteronomy 6.13 regulates oath-taking saying this, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Deuteronomy 10.20 echoes, You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. Isaiah 65 verse 16 is similar. Oaths must be sworn by the name of the Lord. Psalm 63, verse 11 is significant. It says this, But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, with a U, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now, John Calvin said about that verse, quote, The act of solemnly calling upon God to witness and judge what we say is one part of divine worship. End of quote. Calvin and other reformers considered lawful oaths divine 
worship. Listen to what God says in Jeremiah 4, 1 and 2. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. Oaths are an integral part of redemptive history. The law and prophets commend and regulate oaths. Number two, God himself swore oaths. Oaths cannot be inherently evil because God himself swears oaths. God swore an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God established a covenant with Abraham and guaranteed it with an oath. Not because his word is questionable in any way, but because he loved Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and wanted to assure them of his covenant promises. John Stott said God swears oaths, quote, not to increase his credibility, but to elicit and confirm our faith, end of quote. God swears oaths to love his people. The Lord swore an oath to Samuel and David. The Lord swore an oath in Isaiah 54, verse 23. Many Old Testament texts reveal that God swears oaths. Hebrews 6, 13 through 17 helpfully explain this. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Why did God swear an oath? Well, here's the reason. He loved the heirs of promise and wanted to assure them of the unchangeable character of his purpose. God swore by himself to graciously and lovingly guarantee his covenant promises to assure and to comfort his covenant people. God's covenant and oath are gracious gifts to his people. Hebrews chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 7 all talk about God swearing oaths and reference Old Testament scriptures where God swore oaths. In Matthew 26, during Jesus' trial before the high priest and the council, the high priest said this to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, what was happening there? Well, the high priest was compelling Jesus to an oath, putting Jesus on an oath. And under that oath, Jesus affirmed his identity as the Christ by answering, you have said so. God himself swears oaths. Number three, Old Testament saints, apostles, and even angels swear oaths. 
In Genesis 14, 22, Abraham swore an oath to Sodom's king. In Genesis 21, 24, Abraham swore an oath to Abimelech. In Genesis 31, uh, 53, Jacob swore an oath to Laban. The leaders of Israel swore an oath to the Gibeonites in Joshua 9, 15. David swore an oath to Saul in 1 Samuel 24, 22. In 1 Kings 1, 29 and 30, David swore an oath to Bathsheba that her son Solomon would reign from the throne after him, an oath completely consistent with God's covenant with Abraham or with uh, David. In Nehemiah 5, Nehemiah makes the priests swear an oath to keep the law in areas of lending and debt. Solemn oaths were not only numerous in the Old Testament, they were right and good. They were, they were part of the law. Do we see oaths in the New Testament? And I think this is where it breaks down for some people, but the answer is absolutely we see oaths in the New Testament. In Acts 18, verse 18, we hear of Paul cutting his hair because he was under a vow. Now, like an oath, a vow appeals to God as witness to a promise made. In Romans 1.9, Paul used this oath formula. Listen carefully. For God is my witness. For God is my witness. And listen carefully to what John Calvin said about Paul's oath in Romans 1 verse 9. And as he knew it to be necessary for establishing confidence in his preaching that the Romans should be fully persuaded of his sincerity, he added an oath. For since an oath is nothing else but an appeal to God as to the truth of what we declare, most foolish is it to deny that the apostle used here an oath. He did not transgress the prohibition of Christ. Calvin added, it hence appears that it was not Christ's design as the superstitious Anabaptists dream to abolish oaths altogether, but on the contrary, to call attention to the due observance of the law. And the law allowing an oath only condemns perjury and needless swearing. If then we would use an oath aright, let us imitate the seriousness and the reverent manner exhibited by the apostles. End of quote. So Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, took an oath in his gospel writing. Why? Well, certainly not to create a double standard of truthfulness or to imply that when an oath is not taken, truth-telling is less important. Rather, Paul was accentuating, he was fortifying truth, and he was loving the Romans by assuring and comforting them in the gospel with his solemn oath. Paul called God as witness in 2 Corinthians 1.23, Philippians 1.8, and in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 5 and 10. In Galatians 1.20, Paul actually said, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Why did he add before God? Why didn't he simply let his yes be yes and his no be no? Why invoke God's name to confirm his word? Here's why I think it was. Love. Love. Assurance. Comfort. 
So maybe there's more to Jesus' statement in verses 33 through 37 than appears on the surface. Maybe there's more to it. Three more noteworthy passages. I read uh, earlier Hebrews 6, 16 and 17, where the author of Hebrews used human oaths uh, to illustrate why God swore an oath to guarantee the unchangeable character of his purpose. If oaths are forbidden and sinful for Christians, it wouldn't make much sense for the author of Hebrews to use something forbidden and evil to illustrate why God made an oath. Do you understand? That would be an irreverent illustration for God. In Revelation 10, 5 and 6, an angel, which is a holy messenger of God, swears an oath by the Lord. So consider that carefully. Lastly, 1 Timothy 1.10. Paul mentioned perjurers in a long list of sins. The word perjurers refer, uh, refer to people who swear falsely or who break their oaths. By forbidding perjury, I think Paul implies that when lawful oaths are taken, they are sincere, truthful, and kept. Paul didn't include oath-taking in the list of sins. He included oath-breaking, assuming that oath-swearing and oath-keeping honor God. Do you understand my logic there? Why mention perjury at all if all oaths are forbidden and sinful? You just really wouldn't need to put it that way. So the Old Testament commends and regulates oaths. God himself swears oaths. And Old Testament saints, apostles, and even angels swear oaths. Now, why is all that important? Because oaths are not inherently sinful or wicked. In fact, when sincerely and when lawfully sworn and kept, are actually worshipful. All this helps us better understand Jesus in verses 33 through 37. Our view of oath-taking should not put Jesus at odds with the law he was explaining and fulfilling. What Jesus said in verses 33 through 37 is entirely consistent with the law which commended and regulated oaths. Let me read you something about Quakers who forbid oaths, and I want you to listen carefully. Try to get the core of the argument used by Quakers against swearing oaths. Quakers place importance on being truthful at all times. So the testimony opposing oaths springs from a view that taking legal oaths implies a double standard of truthfulness, suggesting that truthfulness in legal contexts is somehow more important than truthfulness in non-legal contexts and that truthfulness in those other contexts is therefore somehow less important. All right, summary, Quakers don't take oaths because they want to be truthful all the time and not set up some double standard of truthfulness or somehow suggest that when oaths are not sworn, truth in those circumstances is less important for everybody. Well, that's noble, but that's problematic for various reasons. That logic disregards God's law, misunderstands human, sinful human nature, misunderstands the nature of oaths, the nature and use of oaths, and wrongly thinks that oaths inherently create a double standard of truthfulness, which, if true, would indict God himself 
Who takes oaths? The Schleitheim Confession of 1527 is the first known Anabaptist confession, a summary of certain beliefs of Swiss and German Anabaptists. And unlike Reformed confessions, the Schleitheim Confession forbids all oaths. It explains that the prohibition of oaths is because we cannot fulfill what we swear. It says this, For you are not able to make one hair white or black. So you see, it is for this reason that all swearing is forbidden. We cannot fulfill that which we promise when we swear, for we cannot change even the very least thing on us. Now, there is absolutely some truth to that. Absolutely. But then the Schleitheim adds this, let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. So we are not sovereign, and that's exactly right, but here's the problem with the Schleitheim's logic. If we cannot fulfill that which we promise when we swear an oath, what makes us think that we can fulfill our yea and nay? In other words, if the reason we don't swear an oath is because we can't keep it, why commit to anything? Why say yes at all? Why say no at all? Why say anything? Just keep your mouth shut. Because then you won't commit to anything. Isn't it true that our yes and our no are actually commitments? The Mennonite Church USA, which prohibits oaths, says this. An oath is often sworn as a guarantee that one is telling the truth. That's exactly right. I wholeheartedly believe that. And then it adds, this implies that when one has not taken an oath, one may be less careful about telling the truth. Okay, that's the same logic that the Quakers gave, but what does that logic say about God who swears oaths? When God swears oaths, does it suggest that he is less careful about telling the truth all the other times that he's not swearing oaths? Do you understand? So this kind of thinking seems to miss the fact that oaths can be sworn in order to love God and to love our neighbor. And lawful oaths can actually be kept. We live in a sinful world among dishonest people. Might swearing an oath on a special, unique situations and on solemn occasions actually show love for God and show love to our neighbor? Nowhere in Scripture do we see an oath honorably sworn in the name of the Lord which then promotes carelessness in telling the truth when oaths are not taken. Nowhere in Scripture does that exist that I, that I know of because that argument is a straw man. Next big point, number four, what was the problem with oaths in Jesus' day? I think this might be where it starts to come together for you. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now verse 33 is tricky. because it sounds exactly right. When we read it on the surface, we're like, of course, yes. It sounds like it's straight out of God's law, which we can affirm, absolutely. But if that's the case, then Jesus would be correcting God's law by saying, but I say to you, he wasn't correcting God's law. So the assumption is there was 
misinterpretation. There was misapplication somewhere in verse 33. Maybe we're not catching it if we just read it on the surface. So Jesus was correcting something. That's why he's, he's saying this, but it wasn't the law itself. Now, William Hendrickson really helped me understand this. So, so I, I come just personal, personally from a Mennonite heritage and tradition. This passage, it, it's blowing my mind. Not sure what this means because I grew up thinking a certain way and, and, and James 5, 12, it just seems so, so this was a stretch for me and I think Hendrickson really helped me with this. Try to track with what Hendrickson is saying. Hendrickson translated verse 33 a little differently but well within uh, the Greek and all of that. This is how he translated it. You shall not break your oath, but shall keep the oaths you have sworn to the Lord. Now that still sounds exactly right, but listen to how the meaning changes when you emphasize to the Lord. You shall not break your oaths, but shall keep the oaths you have sworn to the Lord. As in, you must keep the oaths you swear to the Lord, but all the other oaths that you swear to lesser things are not as important. And on those oaths, you can renege or you can default or you can back out on those oaths. That understanding of verse 33 would explain why Jesus went on and mentioned what he did in verses 34 through 36. The problem with oaths in Jesus' day was that people were swearing by things other than God. And when it came time to honor those oaths, they broke them. They broke their word because they didn't swear them to the Lord. That was their reasoning. One study Bible said this, quote, the problem here was that oaths were being used as occasions for deceitfulness, depending on by what they were sworn, end of quote. Maybe heaven, maybe earth, maybe Jerusalem, maybe, maybe your own head. But boom, not God's name. I didn't swear by God's name. They were breaking God's law by using oaths to deceive and dishonor their neighbor instead of using oaths to love and serve their neighbor. That is the evil the law forbids and what oaths are actually meant to counteract. Jesus explained this very thing, very eloquently, in Matthew 23, 16 through 22. Jesus said this, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. And the assumption there in Jesus' words is that oaths are being sworn. And Jesus is saying that even when someone swears by something other than God, which is not right to do, they are ultimately swearing by God and bound by every single word of the oath that they took. 
Revering God's name and keeping your word is the point. The point is not the universal prohibition of oaths. In verses 34 through 36, why did Jesus mention taking oaths by heaven, earth, Jerusalem, and the head if all oaths are forbidden and sinful? He could have just simply said, do not take an oath at all, period. Might his several following examples clarify what he meant by at all? What was his point in verses 33 through 37 the, the same as Matthew 23, 16 through 22? I think so. I think so. Five, what did Jesus mean in Matthew 5, 33 through 37? Simple, really simple. When God's chosen people say yes, it should mean yes. When they say no, it should mean no. Verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. God's people should not have to swear an oath to tell the truth. Oaths should be infrequent, reserved for solemn occasions, not used in everyday speech, but even everyday speech should be entirely truthful. Wasn't Jesus' point, God's people are truthful and trustworthy people because their God and their Father is truthful and trustworthy. Isn't that his point? Saints, the kingdom, kingdom living, in Christ's kingdom is truthful and trustworthy living. I think Jesus was meaning tell the truth. Do what you say. Keep your commitments. Keep your word. Don't swear impulsively, irresponsibly, irreverently. Don't take those kind of oaths. Just do what you say and be faithful. A Christian's word should always be as if an oath was sworn. Dr. Dan Doriani says, quote, the word of a disciple should be so reliable that no one asks for more, end of quote. The third commandment forbids using God's name in vain, uh, which applies to swearing oaths, perjury, or swearing unnecessary or offhand oaths profane God's name and are therefore evil. Heidelberg question 101 asks, but may we swear an oath by the name of God in a godly manner? And it answers, I think rightly, yes, when the government demands it of its subjects or when necessity requires it. And listen to the reason. In order to maintain and promote fidelity and truth to God's glory and for our neighbor's good. Such oath-taking is based on God's word and was therefore rightly used by saints in the Old and the New Testament. Okay? So, so then, swearing oaths on special and very solemn occasions does three simple things. Number one, it maintains and promotes fidelity and truth. Number two, it honors God. And number three, it displays loving interest in our neighbor's good. We live in a sinful world among liars, and we are prone to lie ourselves. 
by the Spirit, brothers and sisters, dear brothers and sisters, by the Spirit, let us tell the truth to love God and love our neighbor. Number six, how should we apply Matthew 5, through 37 today? And before we can apply this rightly, we need to know three things. Number one, we must know that our hearts are naturally deceitful and we are prone to find little loopholes so we don't have to keep our word. The law's demand of perfect and perpetual truth-telling and oath-keeping reminds us of our deceitfulness and our utter need of Jesus Christ, the truth-teller. Number two, we must know that Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the truth, the perfect truth-teller and oath-keeper. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's divine oaths. Jesus is our yes to the promises of God. Know that it is Christ alone who fulfilled the demands of the law and redeems us from the curse of the law. His his grace frees us from deceit, brothers and sisters, and enslaves us to the truth so that our heart's desire is to keep our word in order to honor the God of truth, our God, our Father, who always tells the truth to us, who never misleads us. The third one, we must keep our word at all times. When we take oaths or when we simply say yes and no, we must keep our word, brothers and sisters. May they see in the church that those Christians are going to do what they say because they serve a great God and he is, they're serious about it. They're serious about him. They're serious about truth. Why? Why would we tell the truth, truth, brothers and sisters? Because we are grateful to God for his grace. That's why. When you say yes, it should mean yes. When you say no, it should mean no. And don't take stupid and superficial oaths. You tell your friend, ooh, I got this dress for $20. Can you believe it? No, you didn't. And just like that, out of your mouth comes, I swear by my mom's grave. I swear to God. May it never be. That is wicked and that is evil. Simply tell the truth. Heidelberg 102, it asks, may we also swear by saints or other creatures? And it answers, no. A lawful oath is a calling upon God who alone knows the heart to bear witness to the truth and to punish me if I swear falsely. No creature is worthy of such honor. Amen. No creature, your mother's grave is not worthy of the honor of God. How can someone's mother's grave bear witness to the truth? It can't. What a rash and idolatrous and stupid oath. If you swear an oath, it must be in the name of Almighty God, and it must be a, a very unique and, and solemn occasion in which an oath displays love and a full commitment to truth and trustworthiness. J.C. Ryle said, quote, all calling upon God to witness, accepting on the most solemn occasions is a great sin, end of quote. 
So what do we do when we realize it is so hard for us to keep our word? In studying for this, I'm like, when I tell my kids yes, it doesn't always mean yes. I'm inconsistent at best. Bad dad. It's so hard for us to keep our words, so hard for us to keep our vows. You keeping your wedding vows? That's hard. I said things. I'd like to go back and hear what I said to be like, hmm. Are you keeping your commitments? I'd like to close with J.C. Ryle. This is profound. We must labor to crucify our flesh and mortify our members to make any sacrifice and endure any bodily inconvenience rather than sin. We must keep our lips, as it were, with a bridle and exercise an hourly strictness over our words. Let men call us precise, if they will, for so doing. Let them say, if they please, that we are too particular. We need not be moved. We are merely doing as our Lord Jesus Christ bids us. And if this is the case, we have no cause to be ashamed. I wish I wrote that. I didn't. Thank you, Ryle. Does your yes mean yes? Does your no mean no? For the glory of Christ alone.